All right, good morning. Welcome to West Winds. Uh, so glad you are here with us today. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, if you're visiting with us, if this is your first time or one of your first time, uh, we just want to extend a special welcome to you. I'll let you know that we're glad you're here. Uh, we'd love to help you answer any questions you might have or help you get connected. So um, out these doors when you leave at the end of the service, um, if you take kind of a hard left back over here uh, to my left, uh, you'll see our checkout area. Uh, there's nice people over there. Be glad to answer any questions you have and our bookstores over there and uh, all of that information as well. So I'm um, glad you're here. Hope you're adjusting to our new, new service times. Um, at 9 and 11 rather than 8.30 and 10 and 11.30. So when someone walks in the back really confused at like 11.41 and tries to sit down by you, be gracious to them, be kind to them. They're doing the best, they're doing the best they can. But uh, it's been a really surreal weekend uh, for me and my family. Uh, my, my oldest child, so my first one, graduated from high school on Friday. So, um, yes, I, <laughs> I feel like you're clapping for me. I did most of the work, <laughs> clearly. Uh, but um, if, if you've never gone through anything like that, that um, it, uh, and, I, and I know for those of you whose kids have already graduated, some of you have kids that have been married already, you have these moments. But for us, this was the first one like that. So if your kids are younger, just know that it's, uh, that it's coming. Uh, and if you've gone through that, you probably know how, how we felt this weekend, a mix of pride and wondering how we've gotten so old so quickly. It just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem right. Um, but yeah, a great weekend for us. So speaking of kids, uh, if you've got your kids with you here in the service today, we're so glad they're here and glad you're here. Uh, if, if at any time over the next little while as we uh, take a look at the scripture, if they're having a hard time, we just want to invite you to uh, take them out in the lobby. The service is broadcast on all the TVs out there and in our kids' classrooms down the hall. We've got great people who are willing to help uh, take care of them and, and, and help teach them, give them a great experience in this service as well. So uh, we're working our way through a series on the Old Testament. And kind of what we're doing uh, is we're uh, flying over the entirety of the Old Testament. And then every once in a while, every Sunday, we're stopping and we're just dropping down into a moment of something that happened. And today we want to drop into a moment that's found in 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, and this is a moment surrounding uh, a very um, important prophet in Israel, a guy by the name of Elijah. So what I want to do today is I just want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about one moment in Elijah's life. And my hope is that by the time we get to the end of this story and wind our way through it, uh, that there will be some stuff that we can take with us uh, that will help us in our pursuit uh, to follow God and help us as we kind of go throughout uh, our life. But before I jump into the story, I want to give you just a little bit of background about um, what is going on in Israel at this time and how we've gotten ourselves to the uh, point of the story. So Israel right now is being led by kings. And there are three very famous kings that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, Saul, David, and Solomon. But then Israel had a whole lot of other kings as well. Uh, but these don't get as much airtime um, in, the, in, in the scripture. And, and in fact, most of what we know about these kings, which by the way, ironically, is found in the books of First and Second Kings, yes. Most of what we know about them uh, is, is really just how they responded and, and how faithful they were to the covenant promise of God. Now, you may have heard us talk about this over the last few weeks, but the covenant was the relationship between God and his people, where basically God said this. He said, this right here, if you imagine that this stool is, is a throne, God said, this place belongs to me. And as long as you keep me here and orient your entire life around me, as long as I'm the reason that you do the things you do, as long as you make your decisions based on me, as long as a nation you worship me, 
then things are going to be good. But if you decide to push me off of this throne and allow anything else, any false god, anything else to come into this spot, if you do that, then things aren't going to be good. Uh, so all of this book, these books, First and Second Kings, basically mention a king and then say either he kept God in his rightful spot or he didn't. Now, at the point of history that we're looking at, Israel is on a really, really bad run. In fact, the last 18 kings in a row have, have been unfaithful to the covenant. They have pushed God out of the way, and they have allowed the worship of false gods to come in. And the king that was at odds with Elijah, the one we're going to look at today, a king by the name of Ahab, we are told in 1 Kings chapter 16 that of all of these kings that were unfaithful, Ahab was the worst. God was, was more angry at Ahab than he was at any other king. So you've got this 0-18 streak of bad kings, and then right in the middle of it, you've got this guy Ahab, where the Bible says of all of them, he was the worst. Uh, Ahab ruled alongside of his wife Jezebel, also known uh, for forsaking God's covenant. And, and specifically what it was that, that, that made God angry with them is that they didn't just allow false gods to be worshipped. They didn't just tolerate it. They encouraged it. Ahab specifically encouraged the worship of a god by the name of Baal. You might remember Dave having a little fun with that a couple weeks ago. Um, but, but Ahab worshipped a god by the name of Baal, and uh, Jezebel worshipped a god by the name of Asherah. And so these two gods were, were really pushed on the Israelite people. So rather than just saying, okay, fine, if you want to worship another god, you can, they said, we will let you do it. We want you to do it. We encourage you to do it. Now, there are big theological terms for what we mean when we say worship all the gods or worship one. Uh, the term for worshiping one god is monotheism. And by that, we mean that there is only one. That is what the covenant for Israel was based on. Remember the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods. Right. Monotheism. One god. We as Christians are monotheistic. We believe in one god through Jesus. And we are followers of Jesus. Right? Polytheistic, or polytheism, is the term for when you have all the gods. And that's really what most of the world at that time did. Israel was different by only worshiping one. Most of the world worshipped as many as they could, and that's what Ahab was kind of trying to convince the people to do. And you understand the logic behind what they're doing, because if, if you have lots of gods and one isn't doing the thing you need them to do, then you just switch them out for another one. It's, it's a really convenient. So if you're, if you're in the ancient world going, God, we really want my wife to get pregnant, and she's not getting pregnant, and that's not working. Okay, let's get rid of that God, and let's find one who specializes in pregnancy. And then let's put him here, and then let's worship him, and we'll build altars and all of that kind of thing. So that's what most of the world did. That's that polytheistic mindset. But Israel, in their covenant with God, was called to worship only him. So that is the backdrop of all of this. And in the middle of that, of Ahab being... Um, I'm faithful to God's covenant. God sends Elijah and says, I want you to go to Ahab and basically tell him this. Until you turn this around and until you become faithful um, to this message of God, then here's what's going to happen. Um, it's not going to rain. There's going to be a drought that comes over all of the land until you fix this. But Ahab doesn't respond to that. So for three years, the, play, the, the people of Israel live in a drought. Now, I just want you to imagine what that would be like. This was an agricultural world at that time. So not only would all of their plants dry up, not only would all of their crops dry up, the rivers dried up, the ground cracked open, their animals would have all died because they didn't have a water source. People were dying. Israel would have looked like a wasteland, dead animals around places, scorched earth. It just was bad. 
And it was so bad that, that Ahab, the king, was sending search parties out to look for Elijah. Elijah was in hiding, but Ahab was sending search parties thinking, if we can just kill him, then maybe the drought will end. But nothing happened. And where we're going to jump into the story, we're going to find our moment, is in the middle of all of that, a three-year drought. And God comes to Elijah and says, it's time for you to go back and confront Ahab. So Elijah comes back, and he has this very kind of intense conversation with Ahab that will show you up here on the screen. When Ahab saw him, him is Elijah, he exclaimed, so it is really you, the troublemaker of Israel. Now that word troublemaker is best, inter- or is best translated as snake or serpent. So Ahab sees him coming and goes, you got a lot of nerve to show up here, you snake, you liar. And, and um, Elijah responds to him and says, don't you put that evil on me, Ahab. Uh, I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers. For you have refused to obey, uh, kind of loses its dramatic effect, right? For, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and, and, and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Uh, Ahab says to Elijah, you snake, you've caused all these troubles. And, and Elijah goes, no, here's the problem. You have taken a seat that belongs only to God and you have allowed other people to sit in it. You have taken a space that belongs to God and you've given it to someone else. Now, for most of us, we can look at this and go, okay, I see why they have had this problem. I see what is, where Israel has gone astray. They have worshipped false idols. But for us, that doesn't really feel like our problem. I mean, after all, I mowed my yard yesterday. I could see all of my neighbors' yards when I was doing it. I didn't see anyone with a big statue to Baal or to Baal. I didn't see anyone with a, you know, Asherah pole out there, any of those kind of things. Like, it doesn't feel like it's our problem. And I'd agree. We don't have the issue of worshiping those false gods. We just have different ones. Ours are a little more subtle and a little better, right? Ours are money that can allow God to be pushed out of the way, and we can set that there. Ours might be, uh, you know, our, our just the way we look, our image, our brand. Ours might be our job. Ours might be our sexuality. There's a lot of different things that we can take and we can set here in the place of God. And I think if Elijah were here today, this is what he would be saying to us. He'd go, look, this spot belongs to God, and you don't get to push it out of the way and put anything else in its place. And the reason that Elijah, I believe, was so um, resolute in this, the reason that he was making such a big deal of this, is because in this covenant with God, he understood something to be true that's very important for us. And that is this, false gods promise what only the true God can provide. If you like to write things down, this is a good one. False gods promise what only the true God can provide. And so Elijah is sitting here going, you are continuing to push God out of his place and put other things there, but those things will never give you what you think they will give you because that stuff only comes from God. And we know this to be true. It's, it's easier to see in other people's lives than it is in our own. But we know this, because anytime you put one of those things I mentioned right here, it never provides what it promises, right? For me, one of the things that, I'll get a little personal, one of the things that's hard for me that gets sit on this, uh, placed on this throne instead of God is, is my work. Um, work is really important to me. I really believe in the stuff that I get to do, and, and I'm really passionate about it, and I'm ambitious, I'm driven, I get up early. My work. And if I'm not careful, I can kind of scoot God out of the way and I can let my work be the most important thing in my life. And that's tricky for me because I'm kind of a professional Christian, you know. I mean, I work in the, the church, so it's really easy for me to go, no, no, my work is, is about God. It's the same thing, but it's not. Sometimes I put that there. And whenever I do, it promises stuff that it can't deliver. 
Same thing's true with money, right? When we put money right here on the throne, what does money promise us? Hey, I'll take care of everything. You, know, you want to be happy? You get enough of me, I'll make you happy. You got this dream, pursue it, I'll make you happy. You, know, you can't afford it? That's cool. Just charge it. Just, just, just do that, and you'll be happy at the end. And we buy into that until we come up against something that money can't fix, right? Till somebody gets sick. Till one of our relationships really starts to go bad. Till we're worried about one of our kids. I mean, we all know someone who has given themselves to this and they're not happy. We all understand that. And so what Elijah is trying to do here is he's trying to say, don't put something in this seat that promises without being able to provide. Let God do this because false gods promise what only the true God can provide. So Elijah says all this to Ahab and then he proposes a very odd context. He says, here's what I think we should do to settle this once and for all. He said, let's, let's get all of the prophets of Baal, where there are 450 of them, and all of the prophets of Asherah, another 400, and let's bring them to Mar Mount Carmel. And then let's get all the people of Israel and have them kind of circle around this group. So just picture this in your mind. A circle of all of the people of the nation of Israel. And in the middle, you have 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, and you have one prophet of Israel. That's the situation. And with that backdrop, Elijah steps forward and he says the following. We'll put this up on the screen. Then Elijah stood in front of them, again, 850 to 1, with all the people gathered around, and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely, completely silent. Elijah stands in front of all of them and says, how long, how long are you going to waver back and forth? He uses the word hobble, but the word hobble there doesn't mean limp. It means dance. So rather than thinking of a limp, think of someone who's kind of like, you know, over here and then over here. He goes, how long are you going to go back and forth? If, if the Lord is God, then follow him. And if Baal is God, follow him. And I've thought a lot about during this week, how we might interpret this for our context, how we might contextualize it for what I think Elijah would say today if he was standing here. And I think it'd probably be something like this. I think he'd say, look, if the Lord is God, then give him this spot. But if something else is God, then at least have the courage, at least have the guts to treat it like it's God. But don't say that God is God and live like it's something else. I think that is what he would say to us. If money is God, then put it right there and go for it all the way. Make all your decisions by trying to make as much money as you possibly can. If the ways that you have to make money are a little sketchy, who cares? If someone gets hurt by them, who cares? If it compromises your time with your family, who cares? Because your goal is to make money. And if that's what it is, then call it what it is. Don't give to charity. Don't give any of your money away because that's not your goal and they can take care of themselves. Make money if that's your goal. If sex is what belongs on this seat or if it's what you're putting there, then leave it there and go all in for it. Get as much of it as you can while you're young and other people are still interested. Do it right now as much as you can. If you're married and it's not working out the way you want it to, then, then who cares? Step out right? You deserve that. And porn, who cares about that? Just do whatever you want if this belongs here. If your image and your brand belongs on this seat, 
then go for it all the way. Bronze it, sculpt it, nip it, tuck it, whatever, whatever you have to do to make it better. But if God is God, then let him sit here. That is the point that Elijah is trying to make. Don't say it's one thing and then do something else. And so he, and, and, and I like how this ends when it says, but the people were completely silent. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I feel like God's really working on me, when the Holy Spirit is really working on me, and he goes, hey, Ben, if you really believe that I am God, then build your life around me. Make your decisions based on who I am. But if it's your job, if it's your accomplishments, if it's your achievements, if you want to spend your life breaking your arm, patting yourself on the back for how cool the things you do are, then do that. But don't say it's me and then do something else. And I, I don't know about you, but when I feel like that is the conviction I have, I don't have much to say. I feel like I'm just kind of left a little bit speechless. So Elijah gathers all these people with all these people around. He says that, and then he goes, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have this little contest. And on one side, we're going to put two altars up. And each altar will have a bowl on it that's ready to sacrifice. And then we're both going to pray to our gods. You pray to Baal, and I will pray to my God. And we will pray and ask the gods to consume this sacrifice with fire. And whichever God consumes it, then that God will be the one who is true and real. And the prophets of Baal had to love this. Because the name Baal literally means one who hurls lightning. He was known as the god of the sun. All of the pictures and images we have of him, he has thunder in one hand and lightning in the other. So when Elijah um, offers this, this battle, uh, the prophets of Baal had to be like, uh, uh, sure, yeah. You, you, you want to have a fire contest with the god of the sun? With the one that hurls lightning? With the thunder and lightning god? We'll take that every time. So Elijah says, well, there's more of you than there are of me, so why don't you guys go first? And here's what the Bible says and how it describes these guys as they attempt to get their God to, to, to consume this sacrifice. It says, so they, the prophets of Baal, prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no answer or reply of any kind. Then they danced and hobbled around the altar that they had made. It's a very, very sad picture that we see here. The word hobble there, again, remember, means dance. They danced. They put all of their effort and passion and energy into this. Oh, Baal, answer us. But they got no reply. We're told that as the day went longer, they started cutting themselves. That was one of the things that they would try to do to get their God's attention if their prayers weren't working. They started hurting themselves and dancing around, but nothing ever happened. And it's really sad to think that someone or a group of people would waste an entire day asking for something from a source that could never give it. But it is heartbreaking when people do that with their entire lives. And, and again, it's hard for us to see this in ourselves sometimes, but I bet we could go around almost person to person, family to family in here, and you could identify someone that you love, a person that you care about, and a person that you have stepped back and for a while now, you have watched them dancing around that. You know what I mean? You have watched them. You have watched them dancing for that guy, dancing for that girl, dancing for the money, dancing for the pleasure, dancing for the fame, whatever the thing is. And you have watched them and you're standing back here and you're going, it's never going to give it to you. You can't get what you want from that place. They cried out, they danced, they cut themselves, they hurt themselves, they did everything, and they never get an answer because false gods promise what only the true God 
can provide. And so finally, they do this all day with nothing. And finally, at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah says, well, it's my turn now. And he gets up there and he prays a prayer. And I, I think it's pretty special. So I want to show you this, this prayer that he prays. And says, at the usual time for offering, the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command, O Lord. Answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. And you got to love the, the humility in Elijah's prayer. He goes, God, I want you to prove that you are God. I want you to show up. Not, this isn't about me. I don't want anyone to think that I'm special. I want all the people to know that you are God. And then look at the last thing he says here. I want them to know that you are God and that you have brought them back to yourself, which is translated as this. Elijah says, God, do this thing so that they all know that you love them, that you care about them, that you want to be in relationship with them. Do you know why God wants to sit here? Why God demands that you don't give that seat to anyone else? Because he loves you. Because he loves me. That's the reason he asks for that. God does not ask for this seat out of your, for, for your begrudging submission. He doesn't want to sit here so he's in the boss chair and you have to do everything that he says. God doesn't sit here so that everyone can get around and just, and just compliment him. God doesn't need that from us. The reason that God demands to sit in this seat is because he wants to bring you back to him. Because he wants you to be in relationship with him and because he knows in his providence and wisdom that it is better when it is done his way. I mean, just picture and imagine if you can any time that any of us have pushed God out of the seat and put something else there. And imagine, just picture a person dancing around this, hurting themselves, crying out, trying to get what they want. And here's God standing off to the side from the seat that belongs to him and going, hey, please, let me have it back. I, I can get you the things you need. Everything you're trying to get, it's available, but I have it. That will never get it to you. Please let me come back there so I can be with you and you can be with me and I can bring you back to myself. That is absolutely the heart of God. This isn't about God just trying to control us. This isn't about God trying to take away things that we want. This is about God giving us everything that we've ever needed because he's actually the one who can do it. That's the point of Elijah's prayer. So Elijah prays this prayer, and the prayer is immediately answered. We see in the next verse, immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. The, the two key words here are immediately and flashed. So this is not like a little bit of smoke coming out. You know when you have all your friends over and you're trying to start a fire in your fire pit and it takes two hours because you don't know how to do it and they're all trying to be patient and good. To you. That's not what this is. A little bit of smoke just coming up. Seriously, guys, I know how to do this. I don't know. The wood must be wet. It's not that situation at all. This is a lightning bolt from heaven that consumes everything. The rocks, the water. Elijah had had them pour water all over the fire so it was very clear that it wasn't him that had done this. Everything is consumed. Just imagine that moment gone and look at their response and when all the people saw it they fell face down on the ground and cried out the lord he is god yes the lord he is god in other words when this happened the people stepped back and said oh i believe this is your seat 
because they knew in that moment that nothing else could provide what God had promised and that nothing that was promised by these false gods would ever be able to do what God had said that he would do. The seat belongs to him and to him alone. And he doesn't demand it because he wants to be in control. He demands it because he wants the best for you and for me. Which means that there's one question that we have to answer. And it's a blunt question, a simple question, um, but it takes a lifetime to answer it. And that's simply this. Who's sitting here? Who is sitting here for you? I have to wrestle with that question for myself, but each of us have to ask it. And it's not a one-time question, because if you're like me, most of us, sometimes the answer is God, and then sometimes you have these moments where you go, oh, I've kind of pushed him off to the side for something else. But who is sitting in this seat? And if as you evaluate that question today or throughout the week or within your community, if you come to the conclusion that it is not God, let me, let me give you an offer, a, a way to respond. Don't, don't beat yourself up. Don't panic. Don't live in guilt out of that. That's not what God is about. He's about his grace and his love for us. Remember, he wants to bring us back to him. So if you determine, so, so if I determine that, that my work and my ambition is sitting in a seat that belongs to God, I don't need to panic. Can you imagine if I came home to my wife and, and said, hey, I was preparing for this message and and, and I really realized that I've been kind of making an idol out of my work and stuff, and I've pushed God out of the way. So, I mean, I've got good news and that I think God and I are back on the same page. And I have bad news, I quit all my jobs. So, um, and I also have good news, uh, money will never be an idol for us because we won't ever have it again. Cause, but, but I'm so right with God right now. I mean, that would be dumb. Now, it's silly on one hand, but also the reason you don't have to do anything like that is because giving up whatever you have here is not the answer. God actually uses the work that I do. The money that you have is is not the problem. It's just a problem of prioritization. It's just a matter of what goes where. So the question I'm often asking myself is, is whatever is in this chair is what I'm going to identify with. Right? So where is my identity? If God in his, is in his rightful place, then my identity is as a child of God and a follower of Jesus. That is my identity. And if my work goes great, awesome. If I'm crushing it at work, super. God is still here and he is still God. And if my work goes bad and I lose a job, I don't like that, but my identity was never in that to begin with. God is still here. So the question is, who sits right here? Who controls our identity? And so what we have to do is just keep asking that question. For me, that's a question over the last 10 years or so that I've asked in the morning. When I wake up in the morning, my simple prayer is just, God, I want this, I want you to have that seat. Then sometimes at the end of the day or end of the week, I'll just kind of look back and go, did did I live that way? Did Did I build my life around God? Did I orient my life around the things that were true about him? So that's the question that I leave you with today. I want you to remember that God loves you and that what he wants and the reason he demands this place is because he wants you to remember that whatever these false gods promise, only he will provide. So let's be the kind of people who ask this question, who's in this seat and how do we make sure that it belongs to God? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the story uh, that is found in your word and the good reminder for us um, that you love us uh, that you want to be in the primary spot in our lives, in our lives, so that we can um, get all of the good things that you have for us and all the things that you've promised to us. 
So God, help us to be people who are committed to evaluating ourselves. Help us to ask the hard questions. And, and, and if we find that anything other than you uh, is sitting in the space that belongs to you, uh, God, help us to uh, trust in your grace to make those changes uh, so that we can be the people that you have called us to be and so that we can get the full benefit of being in relationship with you. We love you. Amen.